0: Friends, I love summer. I wish there were some Groundhog's Day equivalent for the summertime, a designated rodent offering us five more weeks of summer if only there were a shadow. But alas, Neil deGrasse Tyson was right when he tweeted yesterday that 2015 has had the earliest possible Memorial Day and the latest possible Labor Day, granting us the longest possible unofficial summer. And so maybe we've had our fair share. Maybe I can capitulate to the demands of fall, this cold weather turned winter, and I can begin to welcome the changing colors and the sweaters and the pumpkin flavored everything. I say this also because the end of summer brings the end of this summer sermon series on the Acts of the Apostles, Joe Forrest and myself have taken you through almost all of the book of Acts through this through sermon and study and I have found that this story is not so foreign and not so far fetched and not so out of the ordinary compared to our own modern lives. The characters do make up an ancient modern family drawn together by some power beyond and within this experience of the unifying and demanding Holy Spirit. And they try to articulate as best they can, with God's help, what they experience together. And so today we end, not quite at the end of the story, we end with chapter 18 with the story of Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos in Ephesus. Let us listen for God's holy word. After some time there, Paul left Ephesus and traveled from place to place in the region of Galatia and the district of Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. Meanwhile, a certain Jew named Apollos arrived in Ephesus. He was a native of Alexandria and was well-educated and effective in his use of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and spoke as one stirred up by the Spirit. He taught accurately about Jesus, even though he was only aware of the baptism of John. He began speaking with confidence in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they received him into their circle of friends and explained to him God's way more accurately. When Apollos wanted to travel to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there so that they they would open their homes to him. And once he arrived, he was of great help to those who had come to believe through grace. May God bless the hearing of this God's holy word. Please pray with me. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As far as minor characters in scripture go, Apollos is fairly far down the list, at least for the New Testament. However, unlike the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter eight, we do find out the name of this guy, Apollos, so he plays more than just a bit part. And unlike Lydia or Cornelius, Apollos does show up in at least one other book of the Bible, 1 Corinthians. So he must have been at least significant. What might Apollos offer us about God and God's promises? What might Apollos offer about ourselves even? First of all, a little about him. We should not be surprised that Apollos is an eloquent speaker stirred up by the Spirit. He's from Alexandria, Alexandria, Egypt, just west of Cairo. People in Apollos' day would have known Alexandria. In fact, in the same way that we might make assumptions about the business acumen of Kellogg grads, the audience hearing about Apollos in the first or second century would have had their own assumptions about Apollos' rhetorical skills because he was from Alexandria, a place celebrated for its school of rhetoric. Philo was from Alexandria, that most famous of famous Hellenistic Jewish philosophers. The Septuagint was translated in Alexandria, our very first Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And while the Jewish population in Egypt since the 1950s has been shrinking tremendously and was reported to be as low as only 12 people as of 2014, in all of Egypt. At the time of Apollos, Alexandria would have been a hub for Hellenistic Judaism. And so we should not be surprised that Apollos, an Alexandrian, was an eloquent speaker stirred up by the Spirit. Second, we shouldn't be surprised that even within just a few decades of Jesus' death and resurrection that there are already multiple groups of people preaching about what God might be doing. Apollos was preaching accurately about Jesus, but only knew about John's baptism. Though we should not be surprised that without Twitter to give him the most up-to-date celebrity gossip, Apollos had not yet heard of Jesus' baptism. Thankfully, when our power couple, Priscilla and Aquila, enter the scene, they notice that Apollos has a few gaps in his theology. And instead of entering into debate with him in the synagogue, they wait until the end of the day and quietly invite him into their home and teach Apollos more accurately about the way of God. We should not be surprised that there are so many ways to talk about God. And third, we should not be surprised that although Paul and Apollos do not meet here in Ephesus in this story, Paul and Apollos do meet up later. In fact, I would not be surprised if this little story about Apollos that we read in the book of Acts is put there just to help us along when we do hear about him later in 1 Corinthians, in this drama that unfolds between Paul and Apollos. Here is how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians, since we don't have any record of Apollos' side of the story. From 1 Corinthians. When jealousy and fighting exist between you, aren't you being unspiritual and living by human standards? When someone says, I belong to Paul, and someone else says, I belong to Apollos, aren't you acting like people without spirit? After all, what is Apollos and what is Paul? They are servants who help you believe. Each one has a role given to them by the Lord. I, Paul, planted, Apollos watered, and God made it grow. Because of this, neither one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only the one who is anything is God, who makes it grow. I love Paul's take on this situation, his humble brag about how he really was the first one to get to Corinth, and he planted and Apollos watered. And yet, Paul shows some candid humility here about how God is the one who makes things grow. It's a powerful reminder for us that God is the one from whom all blessings flow. And so all of this, this short story about Apollos, gives us really a larger picture than we might have expected. The eloquence of Apollos paired with his identity as a bit of a theological misfit in Ephesus The mentoring of Aquila and Priscilla paired with the theological infighting that went on later all point to how real and authentic and true to life our Christian ancestors really were. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised when our diverse understandings of God divide us before we can remember that God is really bigger than any of the ways that we talk about God, that our God is beginning and end, one of forgiveness and radical transformation turning us towards good, when it might be our nature to do otherwise. God calls us towards unity, and we find ways to divide ourselves. This week, I heard a synopsis of the Bible that highlights just this, how we try to do good, and yet we cannot. Here's the synopsis of the gospel. First, the book of Genesis. God says, all right, you two, don't do that one thing. But other than that, have fun. And Adam and Eve say, okay. Satan says, you should do that one thing. And Adam and Eve say, okay. And God says, what happened? Adam and Eve say, we, we did the thing. And God said, guys. Then there's the rest of the Old Testament. God says, you are my people, you should not do the things. And the people say, we we won't do the things. And God says, good. And the people come back. We did the things. God, Guys, the gospels then, Jesus says, I'm the son of God. And even though you have done the things, the father and I love you and we want you to live. Don't do the things anymore. Jesus heals people and they say, okay, thank you. Other people... We've never seen Jesus do the things, but he probably does the things too when no one's looking. Jesus says, I've never done the things. Other people say, we're going to put you on trial for doing the things. Pilate says, did you do the things? Jesus says, no. Pilate says, he didn't do the things. The people say, all right, kill him anyway. Pilate says, okay. Jesus says, guys. (laughs) Then there's Paul's letters. People say, we did the things. Paul says, Jesus still loves you. And because you love Jesus, you should stop doing the things. People say, okay. Paul's letters part two. People, we did the things again. Paul says, guys. And then revelation. John says, when Jesus comes back, there will be no more people who do the things. But in the meantime, just please stop doing the things. So that's your little synopsis <laughs> of scripture. <laughs> so that's, that's the hard part, isn't it? Figuring out how to stop doing the things. Figuring out how to live, how to develop an ethic, how to make decisions based on how we know and experience God. Many of us come to church for just that reason, to learn and develop a moral and ethical code and to help our children do the same. On Friday, after the image of a Syrian toddler on a Turkish beach caught the attention of the world, a reporter from the BBC interviewed a Syrian school teacher who was stuck in Hungary. A mother of three, she fled homes four years ago and has been on the road ever since. She fled war in homes and went south to Damascus and west to Lebanon and then north to Turkey. Across the Mediterranean in a rubber boat towards Greece. In homes, the war was constant. In Lebanon, it was not good for Syrians. In Turkey, there were no jobs and high rent and a language barrier. Everyone hated Syrians, she said. On the boat in Greece, this little flooded rubber boat, they lost everything. In Serbia, there was tear gas, and in Hungary, as of Friday, she was trapped forced to stay within the borders, unable to continue on to Germany, where she had family. Now, now maybe, maybe she is with those thousands of people who were allowed to carry on, walking or taking a bus through Austria. Maybe she will be one of those 80,000 who will be received in Germany. Syria is just barely bigger than the state of Illinois and 220,000 people have been killed in the conflict in Syria, four times the population of Nutra Township. Four million Syrians have fled the country seeking safety. That's more people than we have in all of Chicago, and seven million more are internally displaced. Last week, I said that the Book of Acts should come with a map, and I still think that's true, but more than that... Hearing about this mother's journey, it was difficult to ignore the parallels between her journey from Syria to the border of Hungary and the voyage Apollos must have taken to get from Alexandria to Ephesus to Corinth. Their journeys must have overlapped. Her sacred map would have matched ours. The geography that saved her life also by way of Paul and Apollos and Lydia and Priscilla and Aquila birthed the church and in some way birthed this gathering here today. Her life and ours are intertwined here in Apollos' story. How then does Apollos impact us? How does his story give voice to our calling, to our ethic, to our way of living? I think the story of Apollos accentuates what we have been seeing in the book of Acts all along, that neither the book of Acts nor any part of scripture in and of itself is a map. The Bible is not an instruction manual or a treasure map guiding us to exactly the right way of living. Instead, the book of Acts gives us permission to do exactly what early Christians had to do remain faithful to their tradition while reinterpreting it for new circumstances. Scripture doesn't dictate how people of faith should respond to refugees in Hungary or clerks in Kentucky or gunshot victims at Stroger Hospital or teenagers in crisis at New Trier High School. All these ancient stories of oddballs and outsiders and tourists and migrants tell us not how to live, but give us permission to live, to live not in fear but in hope. And with hope we can take courage and we can bring God's tangible good news to the hard places of the world with a meal or a blanket or a home or a night without gunshots or terror or a future for a child or a sigh of relief for a weary mother. What will we do? How will we respond? The gospel does not tell us how to respond, but it does invite us to respond. And it is only through this kaleidoscope of stories that we can see God's changing and life-changing love calling us to participate in this, the tangible good news of the gospel. May it be so. Let us welcome in silence God's Holy Spirit as we meditate on God's call in our lives. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.